This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of June 13th, 2016, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 325 of Defender Radio. We began to tentatively celebrate when earlier this month, the Auditor General of British Columbia revealed there would be an investigation into the trophy hunting of grizzly bears. The exact notification, found on the AG website, read that the investigation would be to, quote, determine if the Ministry of Environment and Ministry of Forests, Lands, and Natural Resource Operations are effectively managing the grizzly bear population in BC, end quote. The announcement is a result of the AG's office seeing a peer-reviewed study conducted by our friends at Raincoast Conservation Foundation on the matter of uncertainty in the wildlife policy as it existed in 2013. With support from the Victoria Environmental Law Center and the David Suzuki Foundation, the study got the attention it deserves. And now, we await the results of the investigation. But what, exactly, did that study say? What is uncertainty in the science of ecology, and how does it, or should it, influence wildlife management policy? To answer these questions and walk us through the study, Defender Radio was joined by lead author and raincoast biologist, Kyle Artell. This, the, what, what we're talking about today is really all based out of uh, the, the Auditor General in BC announcing they are going to look into or investigate grizzly populations. Uh, and it's largely based on a study that you were involved with. Um, uncertainty, this is something you and I talked about recently. Um, and, and today I thought I'd be more prepared. So I looked up uncertainty principle because that sounded like a thing. Uh, and I'm pretty sure we're not talking about quantum mechanics. So before we really weigh in too much into this, could you explain what uncertainty is, just in, in that technical, scientific sense? Right. So uncertainty in, in the sense used in this paper, um, is sort of how you might envision it in, in day-to-day life. There's a certain amount. We don't know anything with absolute, absolute certainty. Or another way to look at it is we don't know anything with complete precision. So um, for instance, uh, the drive home at the end of the day, we might know usually takes about 20 minutes, but there's a bit of uncertainty in exactly how much time it'll take. So some days it might take 30 minutes. Some days you might hit every single green and it only takes 17 uh, minutes. We, we sort of know um, around how long the drive home is each day, but there's uncertainty in exactly how long um, the drive will take in a given day. And so there's sort of this kind of uncertainty in, in everything um, in life. And in biology, it's important um, to realize there's this kind of uncertainty in the stuff we measure as biologists. So for instance, uh, population sizes, we can never know with 100% certainty. We don't, um, animals can't fill out censuses. Uh, so we we instead estimate populations and we can get pretty good ideas of population sizes, for instance, but there's always, again, a certain level of uncertainty. We might know that a population is approximately X number of individuals, but it could be slightly smaller. It could be bigger um, based on uh, just this inherent uncertainty. We can never we don't have the tools to exactly know how many animals are out there, but we can get approximations. And that's that's sort of what certainty and uncertainty ends up meaning. And it's interesting because in the, the abstract of this study, it, it, you wrote that uncertainty poses a central problem 
and whereas the importance of considering uncertainty has been widely discussed, studies of the effects of unaddressed certainty on real management systems have been rare. So uh, if we break that down, that more or less means in theory, uncertainty is recognized as a very large issue and it's something that's talked about a lot. But how it is then that that concept of uncertainty is then applied in real world uh, uh, management. So in this case, obviously, in the management of grizzly bears in British Columbia, it's not really looked at that often, which seems almost counterintuitive. If we know it's a big problem, why is it not being considered constantly? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. I mean, the first part of that is that uh, the piece that it is widely discussed, it's widely known when you're... um, Taking, for instance, uh, first-year biology at college or at university, you learn about uncertainty. In physics, in any of the sciences, you learn about uncertainty right away, and you you track your uncertainty. Chemistry is another field where um, you learn very early on um, to to note your uncertainty, to note the precision of the instruments you're taking, and to be very transparent in the precision of those uh, measurements. And so, so sort of from a from a very early age and early academic age, uh, scientists are introduced to this. Um, it's it's it's, uh, it's well understood. Um, again, typically from first year in in college or university. Um, why it isn't necessarily considered in um, in any meaningful way when you boil up to uh, the management level is a good question, and it might vary from place to place. On on the one hand, I think. Um, scientists aren't always great at clearly describing what uncertainty really means. Um, and so it, it tends to just be easier to give a solid number without being transparent about the uncertainty around that number. I think there's a little bit of that. Um, in some cases, it to, to properly account for the uncertainty um, is... It, it takes some additional calculations uh, and we described how to do it in this paper, but it, it is a quantitative approach. Um, and so in some cases, and in most cases, I would, I would, I would assume in, um, in a terrestrial realm anyways, um, it's simply not done. And, and sorry, I sort of hesitated when I was saying most there in the fisheries realm, for instance, uncertainty is calculated and is often considered quite well. Um, so for instance, when fisheries quotas are set, uh, there's often uh, very strong consideration of the uncertainty in the sort of population estimates in how much harvest a given population can take. And this is dealt with quantitatively. So in the, in the, in the fisheries realm, um, there's a lot of precedence for considering uncertainty, calculating it, um, and making decisions that take that into account. And why would that be that in, and obviously you know, fisheries versus terrestrial management, it's they're, they're vastly different in a number of ways, but when they both sort of rely on the same core uh, sciences, why would one so heavily rely on the use of uncertainty and the other largely ignore it? What, what would be that sort of dividing point? It's a good question. One of the differences uh, between terrestrial and marine is that uh, marine harvested species tend to be uh, commercially um, of, of big commercial importance. Uh, and so there's, in a lot of cases, more oversight of the actual management. And there's sort of litigious consequences of management mistakes. Um, so in a lot of cases, I think there's more of an impetus to ensure um, that that really 
transparent approaches are taken and that um, that sort of the best evidence is used um, or the threat of litigation uh, is sort of is sort of around the corner in many cases. I think that's maybe one of the differences. Um, there might there might be differences in funding for different agencies for fisheries versus terrestrial. These are things I'm, I don't know the um, the details of. Um, but I suspect it's it's sort of this kind of uh, in this avenue, anyways. All right, and then let's let's talk grizzlies. We'll talk about your paper. Um, it, so in this study from 2013, um, you looked at grizzly bear populations, and the intent was to try and illustrate how uncertainty would play into this and what may or may not be represented in current management standards. So in sort of that general sense, what were the findings of your study? Right. Well, I guess the first step of the study before it even got to the uncertainty. Uh, piece is we were simply doing a pretty straightforward comparison where we were looking at um, sort of the the mortality record uh, from a from an 11 year period 2001 to 2011 and we were asking um, how uh, how many bears across the province and in a bunch of hunted populations how many bears died um, versus how many bears the province's biologists said could sustainably die. So there's this sort of sustainable kill limit um, established by the province that said we should not exceed this number of bears killed in a given area and in a given time. And we just compared this number to how many bears actually died across this time period. And what we found was that um, in over half the populations that were open to the hunt during this time period, in over half these populations, uh, limits were exceeded. So in other words, more bears died um, than the government's um, own calculations said was a sustainable level. While we were doing this fairly straightforward comparison, uh, we were sort of looking under the hood of the management, and we started to notice that there was a lot of these pieces um, of uncertain data, which in and of itself is not a problem. As I said, uncertainty is inherent in everything. It's just that you need to consider that. To go back to the car driving example, um, if you know that you, you it usually takes 20 minutes to drive to work, but it could take longer and it could take less time, but you have a really, really important meeting you need to go to, you might leave a few minutes early just to buffer against that uncertainty in case there's more reds than usual or, or something like that, more red lights. Um, so anyway, there's, we found a lot of uncertainty um, in the data that, uh, that are used to set um, to set quotas in the province, but that that uncertainty was not being considered. So it was not being buffered against. Um, and so examples of that are population sizes. Uh, the province uses the best current population estimates across the province to set their hunt quotas, but there's a lot of uncertainty in those estimates and that uncertainty is not incorporated. Another example is uh, we don't necessarily know from population to population how many bears of that, what percentage of bears can be taken without causing population declines. So different populations grow at different rates and we don't necessarily know exactly what the growth rates are in each population. And a final one is we really don't know how much poaching there is. Hunters are, are notoriously bad, sorry, poachers are notoriously bad at self-reporting. So it's really hard to get good data on how much poaching is occurring. Uh, but when people have looked into this using a variety of tools, it tends to be higher than previously assumed almost across the board. Yeah, and that's something that we've seen in, uh, and I think we mentioned this last time too, it, there there have been some recent studies showing that poaching is increasing in areas where there is a legal hunt or cull going on, which is counter to pretty much all wildlife management practice up until now. Um, 
which is, uh, I would imagine, definitely going to alter some of these data sets that you've been looking at. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So that, that paper was looking at the Wisconsin case um, and looking at periods when there was hunting and when there wasn't. Um, in this particular case, uh, almost throughout the entire data set, uh, the entire study period, we looked at there was hunting across BC. So I'm not sure that it would necessarily alter the data that we were looking at, but it is worth considering that um, this are, one of the arguments, for instance, in discussing um, the hunt in BC is, well, if you were to reduce the hunt, poaching would simply go up. Um, and absolutely, um, that, that recent publication uh, showed that there's very little evidence to support that. And in fact, the evidence goes very much in the other direction where, where poaching was seen to increase um, in years with, with hunting. Uh, so you, you were saying, sorry, about uh, you were looking, you were starting to look under the hood and seeing that some of these uncertainties were not being carried forward between sort of the original data and then the, the decision making. Um, so what, how do you sort of respond to that as you see it happening? Well, it was, it was a bit surprising because as I mentioned, it's one of the first things we learn about, um, as we're sort of being trained to become ecologists. Um, and so to see sort of learning from early on the consequences of, of ignoring uncertainty to then see, um, in this particular case that that uncertainty was largely being ignored, uh, was it was a bit concerning and, and um, in a lot of ways just raised some questions uh, and these questions worked their way into the paper and, and one of the big questions is well what might the consequence of this be um, the uncertainty is being ignored uh, that this this was fairly clear but um, what effect might that be having um, and so this is a question that we had is, is uh, you know how how might this unaddressed uncertainty affect the patterns that we are seeing these overkills we've observed um, how might they change if you start to consider all this uncertainty properly to qualitatively account for it? And how might hunt management change were it to incorporate all these different sources of uncertainty to buffer against them in the same way, again, that you buffer uncertainty in your transit time to work. If you have a really important meeting, you leave a little bit earlier. Um, how, how would you do an analogous uh, approach for uh, management. What would be the solution to this, though? So, I mean, I'm you know, I'm looking at the study, and there's clearly a lot of numbers in here, which are very intimidating to me as a writer. Um, right. And you know, you're you're saying there's uh, genetic, phenotypic, uh, social effects of exploitation on hunted populations, time required for population recovery, like just on and on and on, all of these different types of uh, uh, uncertainty. So, can you then just say, oh, well, we'll just add these numbers in, or? Is it something that really is going to have to change the entire model of management? Well, what we showed in this paper is an actually fairly straightforward approach to quantitatively account for this uncertainty. Um, so you see there's a lot of numbers for sure. Uh, but in fact, mathematically, it's not that complicated what is in the paper. Um, and we showed sort of step by step how this could be done. So what you do is you look at these different sources um, that I mentioned. So there is uncertainty in population size, there's uncertainty in what percentage of a population you can take, and there's uncertainty um, in the uh, poaching rate. And you can look to the literature, you can look for each of these different factors, you can see, well, how high and how low might each of these factors actually be? Um, so how low might the populations be? How high might they be, et cetera? And you can use uh, these mathematical approaches to then say, Okay, well, how, what might the targets be set at 
just to, to sort of maximally safeguard against all these sources of uncertainty. And what this actually looks like on the ground is you'd say, okay, well, what level of risk are we willing to take for, um, for overkills in a given population? So this, what level of risk we're willing to take is not a question for science. That's, a, that's sort of a societal question. It's one that should be made with considerable consideration, should be made transparently and openly, of course. But if you decide that, okay, well, we're willing to accept a 25% risk of overkill. So we know there's all these uncertainties, but as a society, uh, we're going to go ahead with a given hunt, let's say, um, with, and, and we're going to accept that one in four times we might kill too many individuals. In this particular case, if we chose a 25% probability, if we said we're willing to accept that much risk that we'll overkill one in four times, um, we would have needed to reduce uh, the, the, the quotas substantially from um, that current rate from, from, the, from the rate observed at the time of, of writing of this paper. Um, so even for a one in four chance, we'd have to reduce it substantially. And if we want to go for an actual sort of conservative approach to management where we only exceed targets, we're only likely to exceed targets one in every 20 times, so 5% of the time, we'd actually need to reduce targets by an average of 80% from what the targets were at the time of the study. And we need to close about a third of all the populations open hunting at that time. We'd have to close them completely because they just couldn't withstand any hunt um, given, given the amount of risk from all the uncertainty. Uh, uh, that's that's significant. I, I, like, yeah. No matter if you're talking from that, you know, exacting scientific point of view or simply from that public perception, I mean, 80% is massive. If you want to safeguard against overkills to a high level, and so again, that that is the question: um, is well, that it's more of a societal question. Science can't sort of answer questions of right or wrong, uh, but it can tell us how to achieve certain objectives. And if our objective, if our primary, primary, primary objective for a given population is conservation, and we want to um, take the risk of overmortality to a low level, such as five percent. Um, then, yeah, this would be the kind of reductions required, given all the uncertainty um, in current approaches. I, I'm looking at the conclusion of the, the study, and uh, I, I was taught many years ago that you can't really look at the conclusion and know what the conclusion is, um, because it's the, the interpretation of the data. Um, but I think what is clear is that this, like you, you're right, science can provide valuable insight into management issues often mired in heated debate. And what I see uh, from my position is people saying, well, these numbers are based on science. And then what I'm reading in the study and what you're telling me and what a lot of other people with your background are saying is the science you're trying to say that it's based on is flawed. Um, so is is like based on what you learned in this study, in this case, can someone say that the the numbers involved in the grizzly hunt were based on science or it, is that sort of inherent flaw in the the uh the methodology going to really just counter a lot of the conclusions that are drawn and a lot of the decisions that are then made well at the at the time of this paper coming out in 2013 um i would i would say that at the time that there was a lot of risk inherent in the current approach um so uh, the, 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 there's a lot of risk by ignoring all this uncertainty. The populations are subject to high levels of risk. They could be experiencing overkills, or another way to put it is populations could actually be decreasing. Um, and we know so little, we have so little on the ground information, we wouldn't necessarily even catch that happening. Um, we just keep on <laughs> going forward. The models would still be 
sort of wildly inaccurate um, and, 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 and sort of this could proceed unchecked. Um, what then happened, though, was uh, in shortly after this paper came out, the government uh, announced that they were, in fact, going to increase um, the quotas and they were going to reopen some areas to the hunt that had previously been closed. So the, the conclusions to, the, to our paper were there's a considerable amount of risk inherent in current approaches to management, um, but they could be mitigated against by reducing or, or eliminating, um, but certainly reducing um, the hunt. And shortly thereafter, the exact opposite happened. Uh, so the response is certainly suggestive of this not being a science-based hunt uh, because peer-reviewed science came out. The only peer-reviewed uh, uh, study that actually almost audited uh, this approach to management and the response uh, was, in fact, in the opposite direction from what that science showed. Um, and so this was something we wrote about in a letter called When Science-Based Management Isn't uh, that, was, that was published in Science Magazine in 2014 and that sort of highlighted some, some, some questions this raised again as to the scientific basis of a management regime um, that, that doesn't seem to respond to new science by changing uh, policy necessarily, but instead by maybe changing some talking points. Yeah, and you know, it, it, a lot of what you're saying makes me think, uh, particularly talking about sort of it being a first year learning point. It makes me think of when I was in college taking journalism, and then when I was working as a reporter, then when I was a managing editor and teaching students and so on. Uh, media bias, obviously for us, was always the big one. And you just you hammer it in at every occasion that you've got to be aware of it. You've got to be aware of it. But, and I, I see it as a very interesting parallel that we would very rarely then go back at something we'd done and say, was I biased in this somehow? Right. Um, like that that tool did not exist in any real way that I'm aware of. Um, and I now, out, sort of slightly outside of that realm, I, I sit and I, I watch the news, I read news as part of my job, and I, I find myself offended at some of the things I read because there is such clear bias, because they have not done the groundwork that's always been hammered into us. So as an ecologist, someone who has spent so much of your life dedicated to this science, how do you react when you see that scientific-based decision-making based on what is clearly not good science? Well, at the very least, call it. Like, How do you respond to that as a researcher, as a scientist? Right. Uh, that's a good question. I with with surprise, I guess, uh, when when you see this, when you see a term, um, the term science based being used, um, especially being used so often for this for this particular hunt, um, I guess surprise when you look under the hood and and see that there's these issues, but perhaps maybe not surprised either because it typically is used not by the biologists on the ground working with the department, but instead by um, politicians or by by uh, by by representatives of the organization uh, of of the the department who are making very political statements. Um, it's really important to point out that uh, that there's excellent excellent biologists working for the department uh, for for management agencies across the the board really, and and NBC is absolutely no exception to this. Um, there's really good biologists that work uh, for the province, but the question is whether um, to what extent actual evidence makes its way through to uh, policy is a question uh, for someone other than a biologist to answer. But certainly when we, we look at, um, 
at the manifestation of it anyways in this particular case we see that it it certainly seems to be lacking in uh in in this in in hunt management for grizzly bears in particular well and i i again something else you had mentioned that that has struck a chord for me was sort of the the way the numbers get presented because you were talking about fisheries and and marine ecosystems and how uh there's a constant uh uh, need to to examine the the uncertainty and it's it's sort of part of the world of it now and again i can think of so many times when i'm looking at say a study that's come out a poll on uh you know some kind of questionnaire and they've got like three lines of math at the bottom uh and and as you and and many of our listeners are abundantly aware i don't like numbers um so i look at that and i kind of go ah eh, whatever but that would be, I guess, sort of the equivalent of it's almost a um, like you, you have to acknowledge that this is not exact. And in a poll, that's how you would do it. And it just doesn't look as good, though. And that's why when you read a newspaper and it'll have all the polling information and then the last sentence is the poll is conducted by blah, 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 and is correct, you know, 18 out of 19 times plus minus, you know, mass consumers. Um, and I guess, is it very simply that in terms of talking about this, and is this maybe where the government, where we're leaders, where all of us need more scientific education? Because again, when, when we're going to talk about uncertainty, I look it up and I see something having to do with quantum physics. Uh, the way you describe it, however, is very clear to me now. So is that something that we as a society need to really examine that we need more scientific uh, literacy so that when we are looking at these numbers and making decisions of life and death, we understand the importance of, I mean, plus minus 5%. It's not mm -hmm. just a stat on a mm -hmm. hockey sheet. Sure. Yeah. I, I think uh, increased scientific literacy would be uh, fantastic. Of course, I, I think that the um, impetus goes the other way as well in terms of, of scientists communicating um, as clearly as possible. In this particular case, I think um, describing what we found instead of through the lens of uncertainty, but instead through the lens of risk, I think makes it um, a little more tangible uh, that that we simply found high levels of risk in the current approach. It's very risky to proceed uh, when you don't know fully what you're going towards um, and that you're not taking that into account. Um, so yeah, I, I think in this particular case, it, it's getting too bogged down in the numbers um, for uh, isn't necessarily a requirement to, to realize what's going on here, that there's just simply a lot of risk in an approach to managing blind, more or less. Um, that said, those numbers are very, very important to actually manage effectively. Uh, and so in this paper, we describe exactly how managers could properly take all of these numbers into account um, and very carefully uh, buffer again against um, unknowns, unknowns that are unavoidable, but can still be buffered against. They can still be taken into consideration. To learn more about Raincoast Conservation Foundation, visit raincoast.org. Links to the study conducted by Kyle and his colleagues are available on this week's Defender Radio blog at thefurbears.com. That's the show for this week, folks. I'd like to thank Kyle again for taking time out of his field work to discuss this important subject with us, and all of you for joining me. Until next time, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.